Hi there, you're listening to the Unabridged Christian Fiction Audiobook Podcast. I'm your host, Alana Terry, and this season of the Unabridged Podcast is the Terror in the Sky series. This is an unforgettable, fast-paced collection of six novellas that tell you the story of what happens when multiple strangers board a doomed flight. I hope that you enjoy this episode of the Unabridged Christian Fiction Audiobook Podcast. Chapter 15 I have to get off, I'm telling my husband. The moment the pilot told the attendants to shut the doors, I knew, knew there was no way I could go through with this, no way I could continue on to Detroit. What's gotten into you? Russell's voice is firm. I know I'm making a scene, but I can't help it. I haven't felt this trapped in years, not since I found myself in Henry's basement. I was fifteen, even though he insisted I was a full year younger. I told him my name was Anastasia. I begged him to let me tell my parents I was okay, but he wouldn't listen to me. Your name is Jennifer, he said. You're my sweet little pineapple. We're finally together just like we were supposed to be. I tried running away. After the first few weeks of compliance, he finally took the cuffs off. The very next morning, I made it halfway up the basement steps before he stopped me, tackled me to the floor. I went days without food as my punishment. I complain, tell him how my stomach hurts. You've always been worried about being overweight, Henry tells me. I'm doing you a favor. I cry then, tell him I'm sorry about whatever it was that happened to his daughter, but I don't know anything about anyone named Jennifer, and won't he please let me go? It's talks like this that earn me starvation rations, more beatings, endless nights chained up in the basement, an animal in a cage. An animal he insists on calling Jennifer his daughter. The weeks wear on. The cold seeps into my bones. I'm ashamed to admit it. Maybe I should have been stronger. I go along with his games. I call him daddy like he wants. Every time he begs for my forgiveness, I give it to him, even though I have no idea what he's sorry for. They came every day, questioning me, Henry says. His voice is so full of sadness, I want to cry for him for his poor little girl, whoever she was, for his loss. I don't ask him what happened to Jennifer. I'm not sure I want to know. Once your mother died, I thought I couldn't go on, he says one night. He's recently cracked one of my ribs, and now he's rubbing some kind of salve on my skin. It stings, but the touch is gentle. His voice is kind, but filled with heaviness. I begged God to put me out of my misery, he admits. I didn't want to live any more, not without her. But I had you. You're the one who kept me going. You're the one who kept me alive. There's a hint of pride in his voice, and I'm so tired and so homesick and so confused that for a minute I wish that I really was this man's daughter that I really could ease his sorrow, heal the wounds of his past, just like he's healing the wounds in my side. 
I forget how long I've been here now, long enough that I don't think of my captor as Henry. I call him Dad, and at night when I dream, I'm his daughter. Sometimes I ask him what day it is, but I can never keep his answers straight in my head, and sometimes I know he deliberately lies to me. Like during that heat wave, he told me it was still March. We celebrated my birthday in the fall, Jennifer's birthday, I should say, although these days it's hard for me to remember that there's a difference. It's the anniversary of your accident, he tells me one day. I don't like it when he talks about the accident, when he hints to the tragedy that befell his daughter. When Henry first brought me here, when he kept apologizing to me and telling me I was Jennifer, and he was so sickeningly sorry for what happened, I was convinced he'd killed her. They kept questioning me after it happened, Henry says to me nearly every day. At first, when he talked like this, I wondered why the police didn't do more than just question him, why they didn't put him in prison to rot for the rest of his miserable existence. I imagined he must have killed her, strangled her maybe, or beat her with a bat. But now it's hard for me to picture him doing anything to Jennifer like that. He has a temper on him, but he acts so gentle. He's old now, weak. Sometimes he stops in the middle of whatever he's doing to me simply because he's out of breath and needs to rest. He likes me to soak his feet in salts. The skin on his heels is hardened and cracking all over, and he likes it when I massage them in warm water. When he's done, I pat them dry and rub in lotion. You're such a good daughter, he tells me and my heart aches because somewhere I remember I have a father who used to say the same thing to me. But it's been so long I can hardly recall the sound of his voice. Sometimes I feel like I've been living in Henry's basement for decades, that my whole life has consisted of nothing but his rage, his pity, his love. He's worn me down. I don't fight anymore. The truth is, I don't want to. I'm too tired. When he gets angry, I remember that somewhere is a dead teenager who must have looked and acted at least somewhat like me, for Henry to have gotten the two of us so confused. I remember that at some point, Henry did something terrible to her, that she's gone, dead, and Henry is a broken man because of it. I believe he's responsible for Jennifer's murder, and that means he could kill me too. The thought comes to me most often in the middle of the night when I hear him snoring upstairs. If this man could murder his own daughter and get away with it, why in the world do I think myself safe? Except what can I do? Everything's locked. Even though he hardly ever uses the handcuffs anymore, there's no place for me to run, nothing I can do. When he's awake, when he's in one of those fits of rage that overcome him, I'm quite certain that he not only possesses the strength to kill me, but the will as well. Sometimes I wonder why he doesn't just get it over with already. I wish for it at times, intentionally egg him on. There's very little left for me to fight for. 
I don't want to hurt anymore. That's all I know. And life with Henry is a life of pain. Not the physical so much as the mental, the emotional, the sadness, the regret, the remorse, everything he feels about his daughter, all that grief and anguish. I take it upon myself, just like after I've finished rubbing lotion into his scaly heels, my own hands are drenched in oil. I think we've become inseparable, Henry and me. I think if I were to leave, it would kill him. Is that why I stay? Or do I stay because of the chains, the locks, the fear? And in the end, if I'm destined to die here in this cement basement one way or the other, does it really matter? At night, I dream about my mother. I dream that she's at home praying for my safety. I try to tell her I'm all right, that she can move on, that she doesn't have to worry anymore. I try to promise her that I'll fight harder next time, that one day I'll manage to escape and return to her, heal her broken heart. But she can never hear me, and when I wake up, I realize that I've forgotten the details of her face. I can't recall her smell, the sound of her making breakfast in the kitchen in the morning. All I see is Henry. All I hear is Henry. He's becoming my life, just like I've become his. I forget about the promises I make to my mother in my dreams. I forget about a world outside of this cold basement. And I massage my father's feet and lotion his dry skin and take his pain upon myself because he's old and weak and needs me to ease the intolerable anguish in his soul. Chapter 16 What do you want me to do? Russell asks. We're about to take off. I'm sorry about your parents, I say, but I can't do this. I need to get off. Russell looks at me as if I've started speaking gibberish. I want to make him understand, but how can I? He doesn't know who I am. He doesn't know what I've done. He doesn't realize that I never should have married him in the first place, not with all the secrets I've kept from him. The truth is, I can't make this trip with him to Detroit, can't meet his parents. I can't keep on pretending. I glance at the man ahead of me, the one in the Hawaiian shirt, the one that, for a moment, I was convinced was a younger version of Henry. If I keep seeing images of my captor every time I'm out in public, how am I supposed to lead anything resembling a normal life? I need to get myself back home, back to the quiet of Russell's farm. Actually, I don't care where I go, but I know I can't stay here. Russell needs an explanation. He's not the sort of person who goes by gut instinct, who lets himself be driven by fear or emotions. I've got to give him an actual reason, something he can accept even if he can't understand, even if I have to lie. I don't think it's safe, I blurt out. It isn't exactly what I meant to say, but I realize as soon as the words leave my mouth that they'll serve their purpose nicely. It's not safe, I repeat, lowering my voice. Russell still isn't ready to let me walk off this flight, so I play the women's intuition card, 
hoping it'll be enough. I have a really bad feeling about this, I say, keeping my voice low. In a flash, I see the next five minutes playing out perfectly in my head. Russell tells me I'm being ridiculous, that we're totally fine, that his parents are waiting for us in Detroit. Then I get up anyway, tell the flight attendant I'm demanding to get off this plane. I give Annie a quick hug. Out of all the children, I'll miss her the most. I don't look back to see Russell's pained face because, even though he might not be quite as intuitive as some, he'll understand. He'll realize that I'm not just giving up on this flight. I'm giving up on this dream, this ridiculous notion that with all of our differences and the secrets of my past, we can actually make this marriage work. Except that's not what happens. I watch wide-eyed as my husband takes a deep breath, looks at his kids, sighs once more, then signals the flight attendant. I'm sorry to cause trouble, he says when she walks up to check on us, but I need to get my family off this flight, now. Chapter 17 I know that everyone is staring at us as we walk down the aisle to get off the plane. The children are confused. I have no idea what I'm going to tell them. I have no idea what I'm going to tell Russell. We pass the man in the Hawaiian shirt. My skin bristles. I feel dirty and exposed just being within arm's reach. I hold my breath, as if the air surrounding him might somehow be contaminated. It was the same way I used to hold my breath when I'd hear Henry coming down the stairs, first thing in the morning. I was never certain if he'd be in a good mood or not. I've read a few articles about women who have survived the kinds of things I have. A lot of them talk about how important it was to get therapy after what they'd been through. I never saw a therapist myself. Couldn't stand the thought of sitting in front of some stranger reliving everything. Everything. I actually haven't told anyone the full truth. I learned to hide the emotion, at times even from myself. But my hatred and loathing for Henry grew with each passing day of my captivity. It's hard to imagine now that I could despise him so much and still ache for his pain still mourn his tragic family life. I don't pretend to understand how or why it turned out that way, but that's what happened. I had no idea two full years had passed since my kidnapping. I'd lost track of time, didn't know if I'd been in Henry's basement for four months or four decades. It all felt exactly the same to me. It was the day I finally learned the truth about what happened to Henry's daughter. I'd grown so used to Jennifer's disappearance being such a mystery, I think I actually forgot sometimes that Henry was mourning the loss of a real flesh-and-blood human being and not some phantom he'd created in his mind. You snuck out of the house that night, he tells me. There's something strange in his voice. I don't think he's drunk, but there's something not quite right. Sometimes he calls me Jennifer, and other times he talks about her as if we're separate people and always have been. 
I would have let you go if you asked me. His voice is so pained, my heart feels like it's going to bleed dry. I would have driven you to make sure you got there safely. I know he doesn't really expect me to answer him back, so I simply sit and listen. I'm not thinking about his daughter. I'm not thinking about how strange it is that he's finally decided to talk about what happened to her after all this time I've been with him. I'm thinking about how sad he sounds, about how desperately I'd like to find a way to make him smile, to ease his pain. She was stubborn. There was a boy there that she liked. The words jog a distant memory, the vaguest notions that, at one point, I also was a teenage girl who had crushes and went out to parties and did things I hoped my parents would never find out about. You were beat up pretty bad. He's staring at me now, but there's something strange in his eyes, like he's not really looking at me at all. I feel exposed, vulnerable. For a second, I want to ask him to stop, but then I think that maybe if he gets the rest of this story off his chest, it'll finally bring him the relief we've been searching for. I went out looking for you. I searched everywhere. And there you were, in the woods behind your old school. I swear I didn't lay a finger on you. It wasn't me. But they wouldn't believe me. Police asked me all kinds of questions. Why I went out looking for you myself instead of calling 911. Why two girls said they saw me pick Jennifer up from that party even though I said she ran away. Why I couldn't show them the next day exactly where it was I'd found you so they could test the crime scene themselves. Why I brought you home and didn't think to take you to a hospital right away. I had no idea the injuries were that bad. She was in bad shape, Jennifer was, but I thought she was drunk. Heaven and everything blessed forgive me, but I thought she was drunk and that's why she was so floppy in my arms. Kids do that, you know. Teens do that. But they did an autopsy, and there wasn't a drop of alcohol in your system, my little pineapple. I'm sorry I ever even suspected you. You hadn't been drinking, but I didn't know that. I thought you just needed to come home. I thought you needed to sleep it off. Henry's voice is cracking, and my heart aches so much it's decided to hold still. I can't erase the words you say next. Can't stop you when you start to cry. The next morning, I wanted to let you sleep in. By the time I started to get worried, you were cold. Heaven help me if it's not the blessed truth. You were already cold. I called 911 right away then, screamed at them to get me an ambulance, begged them to help you. But they couldn't. It was too late by then. But that wasn't all. It was bad enough losing you. Then everyone thought I'm the one who did it. I was in a bad way after Jennifer's mother died. Lost my job. Didn't function too great. One doctor said I had an illness in my brain, but he was a quack. I'd gotten angry with you before. I guess you even told the school counselor you were worried for me. You had every right to tell her those things, by the way, and I've never blamed you. But by heaven, that counselor took your words and twisted them and told the police that you were scared of me. 
can you believe it, scared of me. And they couldn't understand how if it happened the way I said it happened, that I could have just put you in bed to die. Heaven help me, Jennifer, but I swear I had no idea you were that bad off. You'll never forgive me, but you have to know how sorry I am. I love you so much, Pineapple. I've never stopped loving you. And something clicks in my head right then. Memories of home, of love, of my parents. It's like I've been living under a shadow and the spell is finally broken. I look at Henry, who's begging me to believe him, whose cries have turned into sobs, and I wake up from a two-year-long hypnosis. I believe you, I say, gritting my jaw because I truly want to gag on the words. I know you didn't mean to do it. Except I'm lying to him. For the first time in Henry's basement, I feel like my brain is working clearly. Call it survival instinct, or maybe it was the answer to all my mother's prayers, but I realize now that I have been duped by a crazy man. A man who's not only crazy, but a murderer. I believe you, I repeat, even though I've put the pieces together to know exactly what happened to Henry's daughter so many years ago. The way he talks about it, the way he lets things slip out, this bizarre explanation he's trying to get me to believe, I can read through the lines and finally know what happened. Jennifer sneaked away from home. That part's true enough. She went to a party, probably flirted with that boy Henry mentioned she liked. And the rest is easy to piece together. Henry realized what she'd done. Either he went looking for her himself or waited until she came home. Where he found her didn't matter as much as what he did next. Beat her to death. Then put her in her bed, turned off his alarm, and waited until she was completely cold before he called the police the next morning and made up an elaborate story about driving all around town and finding her battered body in a field. I know it's true as clearly as I know my name isn't Jennifer Harris, I don't belong here. This isn't my home. There's a life and a family and a future beyond these cement walls. And somehow I'm going to get myself out of this prison. Henry won't let me leave without a fight. But if it comes down to his life or mine, I'm going to win my freedom no matter how much it costs. Thanks for listening to the Unabridged Christian Fiction Audiobook Podcast. This has been the Terror in the Sky series written by me, Alana Terry, and narrated by Becky Dowdy. If you want to listen to or read this entire series without interruptions, you can look for the Terror in the Sky series by Alana Terry wherever you shop for ebooks, paperbacks, or audiobooks.